The Musonomics Podcast is supported by the Music Business Program at New York University's Steinhardt School of Culture, Education, and Human Development. For information, visit steinhardt.nyu.edu slash musicbiz. Welcome to Musonomics. I'm Larry Miller from the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt. When the recorded music side of the music industry cratered at the turn of the century, live music kept many artists economically afloat. And at the club level, live music still provides a foundation for developing artists. But the really big stars are getting older. In fact, if you look at last year's top 100 grossing acts... Half of that, 50% of that, is acts that are over 50 years old. The Rolling Stones and the ACDCs of the world are not going to be around forever. Sure, we love our Adele's and our Lady Gaga's, but the question is this. Will the next generation of artists be able to command the same ticket prices and bring the same revenue to fill the hole that would exist when Mick Jagger no longer sings satisfaction at sold-out stadiums? And if they do? The question is whether they'll be able to do that for 30 years and charge even you know, double the prices when they're older. As the Mick Jaggers of the world eventually stop touring and the industry becomes even more fragmented, concert promoters are turning their eyes toward music festivals as a source of live music revenue. But with lineup overlaps, the claim has been made that we've in fact reached peak festival. 70% of the major festivals in the world are headlined by either of blank or blank. And while they definitely put a lot of accurate numbers on that claim, it really doesn't capture the entire picture. On this episode of Musonomics, the future of the live music industry. And the question is, should we be worried? Stay with us. Last year, we were painfully reminded of the mortality of the gods of pop music. We had to say goodbye to giants such as David Bowie, Prince, Glenn Frey, George Michael, and Leonard Cohen. And this is, whichever way we spin it, just the beginning. Rock's founding fathers and mothers are getting old. Mick Jagger is 73, Bruce Springsteen is 67. But while they're still rocking, artists over 50 represent over half of the concert tour business. So what'll happen to the live music industry when they're no longer around? Neil Shaw is a reporter at the Wall Street Journal. He calls it Rock's demographic crisis. Well, basically, in the live music industry in particular, that side of the music business, a lot of the top grossing acts are fairly old, basically. Um, I took a look at Polestar's top 100 grossing acts last year, 2016. And what I did is I basically did this analysis. I chucked out all the comedians, the non-music acts, and 88 were left. And uh, that amounted to about $4.5 billion in revenue. And the striking thing is that half of that, 50% of that, is acts that are over 50 years old. Mm. So in other words, the Rolling Stones, the Bruce Springsteens of the world are, have a outsized footprint on, on the music business um, still, even today, after, after decades of dominating the industry. It's no secret that people do grow old and fade away. 
And I wonder what the consequences are in the live music business. Why is this uh, an issue to write about and think about now? We've had a boom in, in live music. The, mu- the live music business is really healthy, and you know we're at record revenues right now. And it, it's been a story of over the last past decade. That boom in live music revenues has been very, uh, very positive for the record business because remember, after Napster, piracy, individual downloads, essentially recorded music revenues were cut by more than fifty percent since two thousand. As the recorded music side of the business cratered, live music came in to fill in the gap. Things are going okay right now because you got both engines going. And in fact, uh, on the recorded music side, things have stabilized and a lot of people are very encouraged by the fact that with streaming royalties, internet streaming royalties starting to pile up, maybe we're seeing some growth for consecutive years. But, But the fact is live music has been important in keeping this industry above water in any way. So then the question is, will the next generation's of artists be able to command the same ticket prices, bring in the same revenue to fill the hole that um, that would exist when the Rolling Stones are no longer you know, playing huge global tracks, which they're not anymore. And when those acts themselves reach the age that uh, not, you know, not only what the Rolling Stones are now, but let's just say in, in 10 or 20 or 25 years. Yeah. I, this is an important point. It's not that there's not a, you could call it a bench. It's not that we don't have Elton John still around and Bruce Springsteen's around. You know, we, we still have Guns N' Roses could play for another 10 years. You have Lady Gaga, Nicki Minaj. You have a bench and you got, um, and you got younger acts after that that will, um, will fill the void to a certain extent. But it's unclear that they'll do the feat that the Rolling Stones have done. The important thing to think about is that Mick Jagger is singing Satisfaction in his 70s right now, and he's making way more money than the Stones ever did. Stones didn't make that much money, relatively speaking, back in their heyday in the 70s, live or in terms of recorded music albums. They're actually making a lot more money in their elder years than they ever did back in their prime. That's the feat. So the question is not whether Adele and, uh, and you know, future Adele's, the question is not whether we have a pipeline of stadium-ready acts. The question is whether they'll be able to do that for 30 years and charge even, you know, double the prices when they're older. What were the drivers of growth? Was it that there were more shows or was it that there was a huge inflation in ticket prices or both? Ticket prices have skyrocketed and uh, over the last three decades. And I think the average now is a little bit above $76. I don't know if you recall how much Woodstock cost, but it was a lot less than that. But 20 acts last year charged an average of more than $100. So ticket prices have gone through the roof. And there are lots of complex reasons for that. I mean, one of them potentially is, is even rampant income inequality. But, but a clear reason is price inflation generated by the older acts because the older acts have older fans who have become more affluent and so as a result you have the Rolling Stones charging a couple hundred dollars. You have Madonna charging $216 a ticket. So there are several reasons for this price inflation but I think a dominant one is just the fact that these older acts are, are, are driving that. I read recently an article that asked the question has rock 
become the new jazz, since rock music no longer really drives the pop music culture as it once did. Is it in danger of, uh, of becoming a much smaller niche part of the business? Well, definitely. Um, we are definitely in a period where we're interested in preserving the past um, and making money off of it. And I just have to point to, you know, the Sgt. Pepper 50th anniversary re-release and, and myriad box sets are evidence of both that our, our interest in thinking about the past and preserving it and also in making money off of it. So, yeah, in certain ways, rock is going the way of jazz um, in being something that does not have the same cultural weight. This period of rock music exploding into a huge cultural phenomenon in the U.S., then going global and taking over sports stadiums in the 1970s, all of this development, going back to the advent of the record player in people's homes, all of that could be a historical anomaly. Think about, I mean, jazz prevailed in U.S. pop culture in, in Europe uh, before rock, and that was always a niche business. Um, it was a smaller business. Even, even though jazz was dominant culturally, it was a much smaller business than rock was. Um, someone like Count Basie, I mean, what prevailed then? were clubs, were smaller clubs. They weren't playing stadiums. So the world that we're moving into potentially could resemble um, the world that dominated before uh, in, in the jazz era of the 1920s and the 1940s in terms of um, live music revenue. The music industry will potentially discover other ways to make mass amounts of money, like from sponsorships or who knows, streaming. At the same time, the major concert promoters have been buying stakes in music festivals. Live Nation recently became the majority shareholder in Bonnaroo and the Isle of Wight, and is now producing over 60 festivals. AEG, the world's second largest music promoter, is producing 18, including Coachella, the highest grossing music festival. Neil Shaw says the promoters are looking to take stakes in businesses that will increasingly provide a bigger share of live music revenues. Um, in a world of smaller acts, in a segmented, fragmented music industry where people are listening to different things, using different formats, different streaming services, essentially f festivals package a bunch of acts into one value proposition. You pay a huge amount of money and then you can see a hundred acts. So. It's been smart that the top concert promoters in the country have been basically on a buying spree over the last several years now, uh, buying majority stakes or especially in AEG presents his case, partnering with festivals. In a way, it's the industry positioning itself for a different future where maybe you, you have less Rolling Stoneses and ACDCs. And it could be more of a combination of festivals combined with many acts playing smaller venues, from 500-seat venues to 3,000-seat venues. As concert ticket prices have surged, music festivals can be a great way to get a lot of music for your dollars. Over 32 million people attend music festivals in the U.S. every year. This year's Coachella sold out in only three hours after the lineup was announced in January. The Tortuga Country Music Festival in Florida smashed attendance records and broke the 100,000 mark for the first time. But it's not all sunshine. 
Last year's Bonnaroo was the least attended year in that festival's 15-year history. And both Tomorrowland and Wakarusa canceled their festivals last year. This, paired with a lot of lineup overlaps, has raised the question whether we've in fact reached what's been called peak music festival. Sherry Hu says it's not that simple. My name is Sherry Hu. I'm a media and entertainment contributor for Forbes, writing about music and tech, as well as a student at Harvard. She kept hearing the phrase peak festival, and a lot of it had to do with lineup overlaps, that all the festivals seemed to be booking the same artists. One source of inspiration was just hearing a lot of friends talk about music festivals and how they think that the festival industry is going down and it's reached um, this phrase that I see all the time is peak festival. Like there's a sort of festival bubble and the lineups now are all the same and there's no originality anymore. And all the coverage that's been going on on this topic seems to be supporting that. They're like 70% of the major festivals in the world are headlined by either of blank or blank. And while they definitely put a lot of accurate numbers on that claim, it really doesn't capture the entire picture. It doesn't capture the whole picture. Not if you take a closer look, which is exactly what Sherry Hu did. I assembled all the lineups, and there are only a limited number that were available at the time, so I took whatever I could get online. Um, and so I put them into a spreadsheet, and I used a network visualization app called Gephi that allows you to input the data and then visualize and analyze it in all sorts of ways. On the basis of uniqueness, then, what did you find about which festivals give ticket buyers the most bang for the buck? Yeah, in terms of percentage of festival lineups, it's the biggest and oldest festivals that are the most unique, and which makes a lot of sense. So that would be Coachella and Lollapalooza, which each have over 140 acts. And so, and they're the only two festivals on my list that I analyzed that had that big of a lineup. And yes, and they have also been around for the longest time, which I think has allowed them to develop um, a robust income and sponsorship stream to be able to support so many artists performing. Which artists are booked on the most festivals then? So in terms of, yeah, in terms of festival count, there are three artists, Chance the Rapper, Card Seat, Headrest, and The Head and the Heart, who are performing at six out of the nine festivals. And was there a trend about a genre of music being most booked or, or maybe even overbooked or duplicated on the most number of festivals? Did you discover some trend genre-wise that we can talk about? Mm, yes. So in terms of performing at the most festivals or having the strongest presence, hip-hop and electronic definitely uh, top the list of genres across the board. And I think there are many reasons for that. One, um, electronic music is growing as a genre, and now it really has a mainstream presence at these mainstream festivals. And also, unless you have a huge band with you, which usually isn't that common, rappers and DJs they're the easiest to handle travel-wise. Another point is electronic music, I feel like, is best experienced live. There's only so much you can really get from 
listening to like a dance track on Spotify. It's called a dance track for a reason. You really have to experience it in person. And so I feel like that genre is particularly good for the festival circuit. I've heard it said and read it in your piece and elsewhere that we as an industry aren't or may not be producing enough acts that can actually headline a festival. Is, uh, is that a problem? So that statement seems very problematic to me because there, there are so many different definitions to describe what is a headlining act. So this year's headliners, a lot of them have been around for a very, very long time. And they're either staging a comeback or they're just trying to cash in on some sort of nostalgia that is very common at these types of festivals. And I think some people are worrying that once these artists go away, that there won't be anyone with that type of legacy. But that doesn't necessarily make them a worse headliner. In, in my opinion, good, good headliners, of course, they have to be popular, but they also just have to have great music and be great performers. And there are so many different candidates for that. So I don't see that as an issue necessarily. Do you think the quality of headliners is, uh, is an accurate barometer of the health of the festival scene? So no, I don't think so, because headliners really only take up a very small portion of the, the festival time. Usually they only appear for an hour or so at the end of the day when everyone is super tired and has been, you know, running around all day. So it's, yeah, I think it's not rep- not that representative, but the media tends to focus on those headlining acts. And so the, the, I think there's a perception that that is a barometer for the health, but I don't think so. If I can read between the lines, uh, I'm guessing that you might feel that there is a lot more to understanding and maybe even measuring the health and quality of a festival or the whole festival scene than just the headliner. Yes. Yeah. And there, there are many components to that, even just beyond the lineup itself. So within the lineup, there's an issue of looking at all the artists who are not headlining, many of whom are performing at more festivals than the headliners. And so really are the glue that hold this network together. So it's really important to consider those acts. But then on the other hand, Thinking beyond the music, a lot of what a music festival has become is a holistic experience that brings in other art forms. So, for example, Boston Calling, which takes place at the end of next month, has a new film festival component. And they're featuring Natalie Portman as one of the head curators and presenters. And so that's very surprising, or it could be surprising considering that Boston Calling is still a relatively new and small music festival, but they're seeing the benefit in taking a more interdisciplinary approach. Or I know that um, this was not in my analysis, but the new Panorama Music Festival in New York, uh, they emphasize visual art a lot, and so they'll have whole multimedia exhibitions adjacent to the music itself. So I think there are multiple moving parts to a music festival nowadays. It's for sure not just the music itself. Do you think that film and photography exhibits and other sort of adjacent to music art forms help festivals differentiate themselves from each other in some way? Yes. And this is a theory that I am formulating that I would love to look deeper into, but I think 
maybe as there is more overlap in music festival lineups and people are questioning the value of a festival, they want to bring in these additional components exactly to assert their uniqueness and to convince people to pay for the whole experience. What correlation did you find when you looked at festival lineups about the role of major labels or major label acts on those lineups? Yeah, so this is super interesting because the indie major relationship is almost turned on its head in the festival scene versus in the recorded music scene. So looking at the lineups, um, majors, in my analysis, I saw that they have only around 36% of representation on the lineups, and the rest is all indie acts, a lot of whom are performing at festivals for the first time. Whereas the indie label market share in 2016, I believe, was around 35, 40% as well, which is the exact reverse. And yeah, I think one reason for this is that indie artists really do rely on festivals as an additional discovery platform because they can find new audiences, they're wandering from performance to performance, whereas major label acts, they might see solo tours or like solo artist tours as a better revenue generator and more viable for their artists who already have more established audiences. Are major label acts just not prioritizing festivals? Just looking at what major labels are doing now, the emphasis is definitely much more on recorded music which is where they get most of their money from in terms of handling most artists' mechanical rights. So they're focusing a lot on streaming and getting onto as many playlists as possible. And festivals, most lineups just seem so crowded that they might not see the value of being part of that lineup necessarily. And so going back to that point of instead um, organizing your own tour where you are like the only act. But as parts of the live music business have consolidated, concert promoters are looking to buy bigger stakes in festivals. Neil Shaw sees an additional scenario playing out. One thing that could happen, and it's early now for this, but I think one thing that some music experts are expecting is a world of smaller venues. What I mean by that is if younger artists, aside from the very top echelons of Taylor Swift's and Adele's, if younger artists aren't filling stadiums, let's take the rapper Future, for example. If, if he's not filling a stadium, then the game to play in would be medium-sized venues, everything from, let's say, in New York, Music Hall of Williamsburg's about 500 people. Terminal 5 is, I think, around 3,000. It's not a mistake, I don't think, that AEG Presents recently um, partnered and got a significant stake in Bowery Presents, which controls a lot of the venues in New York City. It's an example of them following the path where demographically and in terms of the music industry we may be heading, in terms of a rapper like Future playing, having a huge name, being massive on social media. Don't get me wrong, the, the stars are big. They just may not be filling stadiums. And so smaller venues may be more appropriate. And I think that's in part why uh, both AEG Presents and Live Nation Entertainment have been picking up those properties and have been increasingly interested in them in addition to the festivals. The thing is now is, is that rock is also losing its commercial power. Or, or rather, it will lose its commercial power as some of these founding fathers and founding mothers of the genre pass. But 
one thing to think about is that's different from saying rock is dead. Um, the rock music business is changing radically for the demographic crisis reasons that I'm talking about, but that's a different thing than saying rock is dead. There are plenty of um, fantastic rock bands, indie rock bands that, um, that are coming out making spectacular music. Often people who think that rock is completely dead aren't, aren't listening to some of the artists that are coming out that are making fine music. Here's what else has been happening in the music business. The numbers are in for the first quarter of this year, and they look good, all driven by streaming revenues. After posting two consecutive years of growth, the three major record labels, Universal, Sony, and Warner, turned over more than a billion dollars from streaming in the three months ending March 31st. That's the third first quarter in a row showing strong growth and cautious optimism is giving way to a recovery. For Universal Music Group, the world's largest music company, that meant their best first quarter in 15 years, with streaming contributing 46% of total revenues. It's been 50 years ago today since Sgt. Pepper taught the band to play, Rolling Stone calls the Beatles' 1967 masterwork the most important rock and roll album ever made. For me, it's a top five Desert Island disc for sure. And to mark the 50th anniversary, Capitol is issuing three new packages, a single CD, a two-CD or two-vinyl album set, and a super deluxe six-disc box set. All three packages include a new stereo mix of all 13 tracks, and the box set contains a mind-boggling collection of other goodies for $117.99. Sounds like this year's perfect Father's Day gift. Finally, the horrible terrorist attack during an Ariana Grande concert in Manchester, UK, claiming 22 victims, many of them children and young teens. Dozens more were injured. This attack stands out for its appalling, sickening cowardice, deliberately targeting innocent, defenseless children and young people who should have been enjoying one of the most memorable nights of their lives. The attack in Manchester brought flashbacks to the Bataclan nightclub in Paris in 2015. This was different, though. It occurred outside the secure envelope of the arena itself, just as the concert ended and fans were headed for the exits. Ariana Grande has postponed her tour through June 5th, at least, canceling shows including the O2 Arena in London. What attacks like these mean for concert going and security in the near future and in the long run remains to be seen, but according to a piece by Ben Cesario in the New York Times, we can expect more security and tighter surveillance in the public perimeters outside of concert venues in the near future. And that's the end of our show. Thank you to our guests, Neil Shaw and Sherry Hu. The Musonomics podcast is produced by Musonomics LLC, strategy consulting and analytics for and about the music industry. This episode was produced by senior producer Asa Secker. 
Technical production by Ibar Iden. Thanks to Gabby Chirinos and Josh Viner. If you like what you heard on this episode of Musonomics, please give us a review on iTunes. It only takes a minute and is so important in helping new listeners find our podcast. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can find our contact information at our website, musonomics.com. From the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt, I'm Larry Miller. Thanks for listening.